0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. Okay, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. I am the author of the book Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. This is James Kennedy. James Kennedy is the author of the novel The Order of Odd Fish, and lots of other good stuff. He's the host of the 92nd Newbury Film Festival. How's that going, James?
1: It's going well. We're going to be in 12 cities in 2019. If you like making movies, you should make one for it with your kids. Uh, find out more at 92ndNewbury.com.
0: Fantastic. And we would like to apologize. We've been gone for a very long time. I don't know when, has it been a full year since the last episode actually posted? It may have been... Yeah,
1: because it was right after Last Jedi.
0: Well, no. Well, that was the last episode we recorded was right after Last Jedi. Uh, But we didn't post it because it was all my fault. I will take full responsibility for that. James was incredibly eloquent uh, in defense of Last Jedi. I was incredibly ineloquent in my disparaging. I wouldn't say disparaging, but in my doubts about Last Jedi, And, uh, we decided, or I decided, uh, and James disagreed, but I decided that it just wasn't a good podcast and we shouldn't release it. And then, and then it's now, it's now 10 months later and we have not done another one. So I think at this point, I think at that point, it had already been two months before the previous one. So I think at this point, it's been like a full year since our last episode.
1: I think, uh, I, I got a lot of, um, legitimation when, when I found out that, um, it was Russian bots who were mostly against the last Jedi. And I realized that you're kind of a Russian bot. And so that kind of brought everything together for me. Me? A Russian bot? Is that one of your American jokes? Ah, see? Um, he yes, and did me.
0: He's already a Chicagoan. I thought about doing that joke in a Russian accent, but I decided against it. So we're here once again on this podcast. We you know, so I know in listening to that episode where we got too contentious, I feel like, you know, and in listening to all of our podcasts, I feel like we sometimes put too much of a value on this podcast on disagreeing with each other or undermining each other or cutting each other off at the knees. And I feel like I'm hoping that starting with this episode, and we're going to try to record more often. Hopefully, this will not be one episode a year thing from this point on. We will go ahead and uh, try to be a little more collaborative and a little less contentious,
1: but this like funny. The, this was like the first minute of a Saturday Night Live skit. By the end of this, we're going to be like at each other's <laughs> yes. You're like setting us up for a fall. Um, (laughs) At this point, just
0: cut to a record scratch (laughs) and cut to us screaming at each other. Um, Five minutes later. Yes, so let's talk about something that I talk about in my book and on my blog, and then we can, you know, instead of this time cutting to James saying, no, I completely disagree with that, instead of James go like, ah, but what about this? You know, let's take it a step further. Let's explore another area of this you may not have explored.
1: Yes, the dark side of Chicago. is like the Siskel and Ebertification. Um, like let's not be Siskel and Ebert anymore let's be two Eberts
0: <laughs> you know I feel like Cisco and Ebert had I feel like we could, it's fine to be Siskel and Ebert they had a wonderful they had a wonderful report they hated each other it was, it's, only, hated it's only when you watch the ads they would record for
1: the show <laughs> and then they start fighting after they record the ads for the show that you realize how much they actually hated each other on the show itself they had a pretty good rapport. there was so much lead in the water back then that everybody was on <laughs> yeah. a hair trigger of violence <laughs> yes that was basically the problem Okay, so one thing
0: I talk about uh, in the book on my blog is talk a lot about expectations and how I feel like being writers have a very unhealthy relationship to expectations because they think that, you know, like it's my job as a new writer bursting on the scene to destroy expectations, to blow away expectations. And I want everything I write to be something totally shocking and new. To the audience and the audience is going to love that. They're going to love it. The audience really just wants to say, I had no idea that was going to happen. And then when writers try to write that way, they find, hey, it's really easy to write that way. Like it's very easy to have a modern happen every 20 pages that is totally unexpected and totally mind blowing. And I'm like, wow, Hollywood doesn't do it that way. Nobody does it that way. I'm the only writer who's ever done it this way. That means I'm a great writer. And how then they write these things and they find that nobody likes what they wrote. And that they have misunderstood the audience's relationship to expectations, how in fact the audience does not want to have their expectations completely blown away. They don't want to have their expectations completely upset. That they, want to, they don't want the writer to upset their expectations, they want the writer to create expectations. They want the writer to have things happen that create certain expectations in the audience's mind. And then the audience wants those expectations to be fulfilled, how the audience doesn't just want to say, I had no idea that was going to happen. The audience actually prefers to say, I knew that was going to happen. They want to be able to go like, I understand this character so well now that, oh, you know, here comes this person who the hero is supposed to be nice to and the hero just needs to make nice to and then they're going to get everything they want and, oh, I know my hero and I know that's not going to happen and I know the hero's going to blow it and then the hero blows it and the audience is like, I knew it, I knew it. Oh, he did it again.
1: And that's good that the audience actually likes that. Yeah, yeah, I think we want it to be that, like, step-by-step, step, the audience is like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. But then at the end of it, they're like, ah, it couldn't have happened any other way.
0: Yeah. Well, so that's a more, that's another way of looking at it. Instead of saying, like, you know, not like, I knew that was going to happen, but like, like, oh, you know, I didn't know that was going to happen, but it had to happen that way. That's sort of your version of
1: this. Yeah. And like, either like the expectation, like... You're setting up expectations, and then they're either fulfilled in an interesting way, or they're subverted in an interesting way. I Maybe like the, a canonical version of this. I know we talk too much about Raiders of the Lost Ark on this podcast, but Indiana Jones finds Marion in the tent all tied up. Right. He's like, oh, it's a woman in distress. They're in love. He's going to rescue her. And he starts rescuing her. He starts untying her. And then he realizes oh, wait, if I untie her, first, he just starts tying her back up again. Right. She's like, what are you doing? And then we get it, and then he, I think he even partially explains, if she's free, then everybody will know that he's there, and what's important to him is the arc. And then you're like, oh, of course, because what's really important to Indiana Jones is the arc. Yes. Uh, and maybe it's not only it's not until the end that he prioritizes Marion. Right. Um, and, and so that, it, it's an expectation that's fulfilled. It's subverting an expectation of, like, oh, he's going to, you know, like, I'm Luke Skywalker, and I'm here to save you. Um, and, but it's, it's fulfilling expectations, like, of course Indiana Jones would do that. Yes. It, it, but it's in a, if you fulfill an expectation in a surprising way, that's what the audiences love. Yes,
0: yes. In that case, it's like they're putting our knowledge of the character against our, our audience expectations of what should happen in this sort of movie, And they're going, like, they're saying, like, do you really want to have what you would traditionally want to see in this movie? Or would you rather have this character be true to himself? And, you know, what the audience really wants is for the character to be true
1: to himself. And that happens again and again in the movie, like, with the the sword fight scene. The guy comes out with a big sword, and he shoots, and it's like, oh, yeah, he's a very practical man. Like, you know, of course, that's the way he would resolve that situation instead of a big cinematic sword fight. Um, So I was thinking about expectations. uh And um, my wife and your wife, I think, just went through... Uh, active shooter training at the library. Um, yes. They will, our, they will, our wives are
0: librarians together. That's how we ended up in the same city is because uh, our wives are librarians at the same library.
1: Yes. And so um, and they talked at the at this about the OODA loop. Um, and I had heard of this before, and then Heather and I were talking about it a lot today, Um, and have you ever heard of the OODA loop before? I, until you started pitching me this episode, I had never heard of OODA loops. So it's O-O-D-A. And this is a concept that was thought up by this United States Air Force Colonel John Boyd. And basically OODA stands for observe, orient, decide, act. So you're in like some kind of crazy situation and trying to figure out what to do. What you do is you observe, you orient, you decide and act. And that seems like very intuitive. Like, oh yeah, of course that's what you do. But here's the kind of wisdom in it. The other person is also observing, orienting, and deciding and acting at the same time. And what this methodology is about is it's about agility, overcoming raw power in dealing with human opponents. So... If you can process your OODA loop more quickly, if you can observe, orient, decide, and act more quickly than the other guy, then you can get inside their OODA loop and disrupt it and constantly have them being observing and then orienting. But then you do something new, it causes them to observe again and then orient. And they can never get to decide and acting because either you're doing something they don't expect or you're unleashing some kind of chaos into the situation. And they were talking about this in the in the sense of the active shooter training, like. They used to say, oh, you should just run or hide or do whatever they say. Now they say, like, throw something at the guy. You know, introduce (laughs) some kind of chaos into the situation. You have to operate at a faster tempo or rhythm than your adversary and get inside their loop. And it might generate confusion and disorder since they can't generate mental images or pictures that agree with what's going on. They fall behind. And so I was thinking about that. That's what's happening in our country right now. We've got, like, Donald Trump, who, for all of his faults. uh, Uh, he's the president. Okay. Uh, he's, he's like this ma- master storyteller, or at least an intuitive master of it. And what he does is like, um, they, there'll be like some awful thing like, oh, this payoff, the story, Stormy Daniels. And then, and they're like, I would be outraged about that. But then another thing comes down the line. Oh, there's children being separated from their parents at the border, being kept in cages. Like, oh, we're all upset about that. And like, no, wait, here's another thing. Um, he's seen to connive with the Saudis and covering up the murder of a journalist um, and the idea is, like, he's constantly, you're constantly going between observe and orient, observe and orient. You can never decide and act because you're always caught between observe and orient. And Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon, basically said this in an interview with Mike Lewis. He said, you know, the Democrats don't matter. The real opposition is the media. And the way to deal with them is to flood the zone, with shit. There's yeah. a fire hose of shit. You can't concentrate on just one thing. So you just kind of give up. But that's a point. That's that is, It is kind of, like, what we want to do to the audience. Yeah. though, and, and so what we wanted them to do is that be constantly ping-ponging between observe and orient, observe and orient. They, they see something, and then they make an expectation, but then we do something that sends them back to observe. We don't want them to decide and then to act, because that decision might be, I'm going to get up and leave the theater, and acting might be get them getting up and walking out. Or putting the book down, or whatever. I don't fully agree with this, but okay. I see where you're going with this. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a... Well, let, let me win you over. Okay. The, the, the idea is, like, you set up an... You, you show the audience something. That's the observe. And then they orient themselves to it. They're like, oh, oh okay, I, I think I know what's going to happen next. And then you give them another thing that makes them kind of be retracted... Back to, oh, wait, I think I, I guess I didn't know what was going on. I've, yeah. I've got another thing to have to deal with. And in this way, you, you never, the, so let me put it this way. I've read a bunch of books. Like, there was a point in my life where I was like, I'm going to read all the classics. And uh-huh. I would read books that are written in like the 40s and 50s or something. Like, um what's what's one of the, The Bad Seed? Uh-huh. You ever read The Bad Seed? I never read is The Bad Seed. Like, is it Child? And right. it turns out the bad child is like the devil or something. And the, basically, at the beginning, you have this thing, oh, looks like the child's going to be the devil. And then through the middle, child's acting like the devil. And at the end, God, the child really was the devil. It, I was never ping-ponging between observe and orient. Observe and orient. I just went to observe, orient, decide, act. Like it, I just knew what was going to happen. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it never reset expectations in a fruitful way. And that's why that book, and a lot of books maybe from that era, like I was reading, frankly, some Shirley Jackson stuff, and it wasn't doing it for me. Because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I see what's going to happen now. And, and, and then it happened. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. That I think that is the crucial thing about like doing the Steve Bannon kind of I I don't I don't, I don't know how much these kind of
0: so make, you're saying that Troy Jackson was a bad writer because she wasn't more like Steve Bannon
1: yes yeah <laughs> and you said you didn't want to be more contentious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to glean some kind of wisdom out of the the hellhole that we're in right now and, yeah. and trying to learn some... Le- I mean, you have to learn a lesson from this person who yeah. is kicking the, the ass of your side. That's true. You, you know, so we have to figure out how it works. Yeah. Characters can use the OODA loop against each other, especially when they're debating or sparring or trying to get in each other's head. Um, there's a great scene about my daughter, Lucy, is really into the Mission Impossible movies, so I've rewatched them all recently. And the best villain of all of them is Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Mission Impossible 3. And one of the reasons that he's like so casual and blase, he doesn't twirl his mustache, he doesn't act like this cackling weirdo villain. Um, but he has, there's this great scene in which Tom Cruise's character has just captured Philip Seymour Hoffman's character and he's going he wants to find out where the rabbit foot is. And in this scene, which we'll, we'll play in a second, the audio of it, um, you'll see how Philip Seymour Hoffman keeps getting inside Tom Cruise's OODA loop. Tom Cruise wants to like have expectations go this way and, and have the conversation go in a certain way. And what Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing is that in, every time he interrupts Tom Cruise, it's not like, oh, I'm just saying something that's utterly irrelevant. It's something that's differently irrelevant in a different way every time, getting into Tom Cruise's head, adjusting on the fly to figure out what's important to him, and then drilling down to that and then using that to get what he wants. And by the end of this, the scene, the who is dominant and who is, on the losing side, has been completely reversed. Let's listen to the scene now. So they are
0: interrogating Philip Seymour and Philip Seymour wakes up from being unconscious. So he's already, he's dominating the scene that he is just, you know, has no idea where he is, and who has grabbed him. He's awakened from being unconscious, instantly starts dominating the scene. He doesn't even realize until halfway through the scene that he is being interrogated on a bomber jet that he is being flown away on and then he realizes this when halfway through they get Tom Cruise gets so frustrated with him that he opens up the pod bay doors and dangles him out the pod bay doors, dangles him over the ground below and threatens to drop him. Um, So let's go ahead and listen to the scene.
1: You're dead, Mr. David. There are witnesses.
0: I was you in the bathroom.
1: And you're gonna tell us everything. Every buyer you've worked with, every organization. What the hell is your name? Names, contacts, inventory lists. You have a... my
0: wife, girlfriend. It's up to you how this goes. Because you know what I'm gonna do next? I'm gonna find her. Whoever she is, I'm gonna find her and I'm gonna hurt her. You were apprehended carrying details of the location of something codenamed the rabbit's foot. I'm going to make her bleed and cry and call out your name. And you're not going to be able to do shit. You know why? What is a rabbit's foot? Because you're going to be this close to dead. And who is the buyer? And then I'm going to kill you right in front of her. I'm going to ask you one more time. What's your name? What is a rabbit's foot? Who are you? And doing? who's the buyer? You don't have any idea what the hell's going on, do you? I mean, you saw what I did to your little blonde friend at the factory, right?
1: Oh, that was nothing. That was fun. That's fun.
0: Okay, so then you heard him then go ahead and try to dangle him, and then we're not going to play it because the, it's too hard to hear on a podcast, but Ving Rhames then gets freaked out, realizing Tom Cruise really intends to kill him. Tom Cruise is cutting the straps one by one. They're holding the solo of Seymour Hoffman there, and then Ving Rhames is going, Ethan, stop. Ethan, don't do it because Tom Cruise's character is named Ethan. And then Tom Cruise gives up, hauls him back inside, closes the Pot Bay doors, and then we hear Philip Seymour Hoffman say this. What I'm selling... And who I'm selling to is the last thing you should be concerned about. Ethan.
1: And of course, that's the, what he had asked for earlier in the scene. What's your name? And now he's got it. He and got now it. he's dominating Tom Cruise. Where at the beginning, he's seen that Tom Cruise held all the cards. How did he do it? By getting inside uh, Tom Cruise's character's OODA loop. And I certainly see what you're saying here.
0: Is that, you know, this is what we want, you know, we want, you know, and to a certain extent, this scene is upsetting our expectations of what happens in a Mission Impossible movie or what happens on a Mission Impossible TV show, where, like, you know, I actually talk about in my book the Mission Impossible rule, which is that the heroes, you know, the problem they had with Mission Impossible in the original TV show is the heroes were always six steps ahead of the villain, and they always had such... Clever and brilliant ways of interrogating the villain in the most recent Mission Impossible movie. There's this, you know, they actually got Wolf Blitzer to act in the movie. And they got (laughs) Wolf Blitzer. One of them was dressed up as Wolf Blitzer with a Wolf Blitzer mask on, pretending that, you know, that uh, the world had been nuked in order to, you know, cleverly force a confession out of a guy. And that's like the classic Mission Impossible formula. And here you have, you know, the classic we're going to trick you into talking and then it just gets completely thrown on its head by this guy who is just not having it. You know, this very he's a very non Mission Impossible villain. He is upsetting our expectation of what happens a Mission Impossible Villain because we're used to Mission Impossible Villains being these just these stuttering dupes. Who are just like, what, what, what did you do? I can't even understand. That was, you were wearing a mask the whole time. And this guy's just not having it.
1: And it's, you know, we really enjoy having those expectations upset. So you've got to keep them ping-ponging between observing and orienting. You put out a reality, you, you allow the audience or your interlocutor to adjust to the reality. And then you pivot to a new reality before it gets stale. I think that's what I was missing in those books from the fifties that I would read. That mm-hmm. would like it would it would put out a reality, I would adjust to the reality, and they would then like a clockwork the reality would just continue to become be that reality until it was over. It never pivoted to a new reality. That's mm-hmm. why I got bored with those books. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people read the Bad Seed these days. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, but okay, okay, but like I was, you know, I think everybody went between like nineteen and twenty-seven. And says I'm going to read the classics, yeah. and, and then you kind of like and maybe not the Bad Seed, maybe it's not really a classic. It's kind of popular from the fifties, <laughs> but it, it was part of that general effort. But if yeah. you read, you know, there's a lot of things that you read and like, oh, geez, yeah. they, they thought this was great and in the nineteenth century, Jude the Obscure, I don't know, something like that, <laughs> right. and, and you're like, I see where this is going. Right. Um, and I think I think storytelling has to change because we've seen it all before. We're we're different humans now. Like back then, the like, people had seen like three stories, yeah. and they were all from the Bible. Uh, um, and now, like there's as many stories. We've seen them all, and we have to do this pivoting. I mean, um, we were talking about like, one movie that gets very close to breaking the rule that you said. Like, oh, it's just like one crazy thing after another. Is Pulp Fiction from the '90s? Yes. Which, If you watch the it, date, it's still as fresh oh, as yeah. it was it really in is. 1995. Um, and that sets up realities, and, it, and it, but it orients you in them, and then it pivots away in an interesting way. And I think that idea of orienting is the difference between what we're talking about and what you're talking about. With like, I'm just going to put one crazy thing after another, and everybody will love me.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, that Pulp Fiction had a very poisonous effect, I think, on my generation. Where everybody saw Pulp Fiction it's like, there are no rules anymore. There are no rules. Pulp Fiction breaks all the rules. Isn't that right? Pulp Fiction broke all the rules and did it very well and very successfully and showed that the rules could be broken. But then everyone's like, said, oh, that means I have the right to break. That means there are no rules. That means no one can ever cite any rules to me. No one can ever say, oh, this is the way things are usually done. There is no usual anymore. There's no nothing. And so, you know, what you had is a bunch of people, you know, ironically, just aping Pulp Fiction. And... They were just terrible. They were so bad. And whenever you try telling anybody after Pulp Fiction, like, okay, you know, this is not what readers are going to want out of your story. This is not what audiences are going to want out of your story. They're like, well, what do I care? What do I care about readers want or what audiences want? Quentin Tarantino doesn't care. And me and Quentin, were good buddies. And me and Harvey gonna, Weinstein. Me and Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> we're going to upset the world. We're going to overturn the world. And
1: it was really dangerous. It was really bad. You're talking about these directors who are trying to live up to Quentin Tarantino, right? Right. Well, the, like so I think I was thinking about like how does expectations work in character in a broader or general way? And, like characters we think of characters as like, oh, they have this core to them. Like they are this kind of person. They always act like this no matter what. But in fact, like characters are always trying to live up to some kind of role that they want to fulfill or has been thrust upon them. And they they do things not because of something that's welling up from deep inside them, but because what others expect of them, either like fulfilling those expectations or defying them. I think big changes in plot come when the expectations on a character change, when a character accepts a new set of expectations. And it sounds very um, kind of uh, uh, like vague or general, but like, think about like I noticed this when I was reading, rereading Harry Potter with my daughters. Like Harry changes from scene to scene based not on his wants or who he is or even his strategies to get what he wants, but rather what's expected of him. Um, like at the Dursleys, he's a different kind of character because of what's expected of him than what he is with Hagrid at Diagon Alley or how he is at Hogwarts. Um, oh, that's
0: right. So this was coming up when we were talking about another thing I talk about in my blog and in my book, and that I've been talking about recently. Uh, recently the blog, is about, you know, the three tactics. How, like, generally, you know, you want your hero to have default tactics that they keep returning to over and over again. And you want her- heroes to have sort of three rules they live by. And that, you know, like you know like John Wayne and The Shoot is saying, you know, I won't be insulted, I won't be laid a hand on, you know, I won't, you know, those sort of three, the ethos. And you were sort of giving me some pushback for that as well. You were saying that, you know, that the rules, you know, that heroes should not necessarily be relying on the same rules and tactics from scene to scene, but should be adjusted.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's, and I don't think even they realize who they are. It's almost like when you go home to your parents, and you turn into your old, shitty 18-year-old self. Yes. Like, arguing with them and being a baby about everything, Matt. Um, I, so, <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, so notice how Harry reverts back from badass hero to petulant kid as soon as, he ba- as he's back at the Dursleys. Right. Every summer. Notice how like Ripley in Aliens changes whether she's alone with Newt or whether she's with the space marines. Uh, Luke in Star Wars is by turns petulant, dreamy, bold, badass, or glum, all in one movie. So what we realize is that these things don't come from inside them. They come from outside the character. The character absorbs their surroundings and tries to replicate the expectations. Characters are almost a different character from scene to scene. And I think that that is Points out something deep about character. This is almost any character when we see them on the job versus at home, in the most banal way. Like character isn't a fixed thing that is the same from scene to scene, or no matter what the character is talking to or what they are doing. It's a context-specific thing that can be very quite wildly, uh, widely depending on the situation. We and the characters almost literally become other, different, intriguingly contradictory, intriguingly contradictory. Like something that is oh, people look at it and say, "Yep, that's just how life is." Characters when we are in different contexts. And different other characters bring out different aspects of our character. Uh, this is, in fact, a way of deepening and enriching character, showing how they act differently, perhaps even contradictorily or inconsistently, in different contexts. Uh, and maybe that's even a must, that to like write a deep character, you have to show the same character act contradictorily at different times according to context. Right. Yeah, which I think is, again, not so
0: much as saying returning what I what I recommend or what my advice is but you're saying like well wait just a second you know there's a more sophisticated way to do this there's a way to adjust you know instead of relying on this as a hard fast rule that you know characters should have default argument tactics they fall back on you know throughout the story no matter how much their personality changes or no matter how much you know no matter how much their circumstances change you're like well, you know, is that actually how we are in real life? Don't we change when we go back home? Like, and therefore shouldn't Harry change when he goes back home? And Seems if, to be what
1: you're saying. Yeah, and even like, the worst version of Raiders of the Lost Ark would be like, this kind of swashbuckling adventurer gets into the classroom and continues to act like a swashbuckling adventurer. Right. And I think that's a, a, a problem that most movies have. I mean, people might say, oh, well, well he is a swashbuckling. We've already established he's the swashbuckling adventurer. Let's see him be the same guy in the classroom. And that would be terrible. We like to see like these multiple and, uh, things about somebody. And I, I think the thing that I wanted to stress is that, and it, it, actually what makes it very filmic, is that these are things that come from outside the character, and so they're visual. They're not things that are novelistic. They're not psychological ruminations about the different aspects of myself. We can see these expectations. They're visual outside the character. They're exterior, and therefore they're more movieable Yes. So so how does this tie into Oodle Loops? About, it's about expectations. We're, we're, right. we're setting and resetting expectations. We see the Indiana Jones getting the idol. We think, oh, we're just going to watch this guy get idols for the whole movie. <laughs> and then we see him in a classroom. We're like, wait, wait, what? And we're the, it's reset. We're like, okay. And, and, then, and then it's reset again when the CIA guys are talking. And he seems to know more about this than his boss or the CIA guys. And then we see it reset again when he's dealing with Marion. It's like, Oh wait, this guy is like a heartbreaker and like she was 14 when he and that's a weird moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, um the, and, and and then and then you say oh but he's got friends all over the world when he meets Sala like and we see he has these various different personalities along right. the way um that you don't get just the first time that you meet him. Right. Um he's kind of like a cold-blooded jerk at the beginning um and, and so well, I, but, and so, you know there was so <laughs> You know, Bob Kane
0: supposedly created Batman and supposedly wrote the early Batman comics, and then later they were like, no, 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 he didn't really write them. He was sort of lying about the fact that he'd written them. Well, when they were making the 1989 Batman movie, they brought Bob Kane on the set, and they said, oh, you created Batman. You wrote all those early Batman comics, which he didn't really really write. And they said, you know, do you have any notes? And he actually gave them, like, he said, yes, I have a huge note for you. And they took it. And I think it was a mistake to take it. When he was Bruce Wayne, then the Joker came and kidnapped Vicki Vale, Uh, While he was there and they he was like no Bruce Wayne and Batman aren't all that different He should act just like Batman when he's Bruce Wayne and they said, you know, he should throw himself in front of the joker's gun and it was sort of this ridiculous scene where then he threw himself in front of the joker's gun and and joker shot him and seemingly killed him and mm-hmm. then and then the joker leaves and it turns out batman knowing uh, that bruce wayne knowing that the joker would shoot him in the chest had put a silver serving tray inside his shirt <laughs> um which I'm, I'm saying all this i don't think i've seen this movie since 1989 so this is all from memory but it was all because they took this note from this guy who was pretending he had written the early batman stories who hadn't
1: <laughs> oh, is it that thing? scene where, where, like, like yeah, Bruce Wayne starts acting like a badass. He looks yeah. like a, a fire poker. Yeah, fire poker. They, right. they dance with the devil in the moonlight or whatever. Yeah, that's a terrible scene. <laughs> it's
0: a terrible scene.
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: and you're right. It's a it's a question of like not realizing the truth of Batman, not realizing the truth of superhero movies, not realizing that you know we want them to only become the superhero when they put the mask on. We don't want them to. You know, we don't want Bruce Wayne to be this badass. And I think that that's that that's, you know, a general sort of I think that was a flaw that was in a lot of comic books in the eighties, where they're like, you know, oh, you know, people, you know, people don't want weakness. You know, it's the eighties. Nobody mm-hmm. wants weakness anymore. They don't Nobody want they don't want the hero at any to, point. They don't want the hero to be weak, but they don't want the secret identity to be weak either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had Cart Kent become a lot more confident in the comics. You had Peter Parker, you know, married a supermodel and Cart Kent married Lois Lane. And and everybody, you know, the heroes stop being losers in their in their secret identities and start being winners. And you know, it's what you're saying with if Indiana Jones was just as much of a strutting badass when he was mm-hmm. teaching his class as he was uh, when He's he was out with idols, by, yes. the, by the girls like fluttering their eyelashes at him. Yes, I think you're right. I think that you know that characters can be too consistent.
1: Yeah, and so I th- I, th- I think there's kind of like hey, it's like hobgoblin little minds kind of aspect is like i'm gonna do everything right i'm gonna make my character like the same throughout so but i th- i think it's it's not only in our lives it's also in great literature and it's also i think when you're writing you might be you, you might be kind of baffled like oh so i was trying to write something this is when i came up with this idea of oh. expectations um like the I, I was trying to write this book about a space olympics Mm-hmm. And um, and the character gets to this point, which he's he realizes, oh, I'm one of I'm I'm part of one of this magical, not magical, but one of these families that has family members all over all nine planets, and I am a nine. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> in, in in the book, it's nine. Like, <laughs> in, um, in, in he's like, I, I'm a member of this society, uh-huh. and and so what I had done wrong in the old book. Version of the book is like he continued to act like who he had acted like up to that point, but right. I realized, oh, this is an opportunity for him to like take on new expectations right. the way that Harry Potter did. It's like, oh, this is how Quidditch works. Okay, I'm gonna adjust to that. Right. Oh, wait, th- this is what I should be doing, you know, in the in the main hall or whatever. And like characters want to take on these new expectations and and fulfill them or subvert them. and That's how they change. That's how they grow. And that's how they show their depth. And not just I'm gonna be the same character throughout no matter what happens.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think what you're making is a good point. I think that uh, that this is something that you, you know, I'm sure I'll be more aware of now as I watch movies going, oh, you know, this is an example of being glad that a character is not as consistent or is not as, you know, relying on their default, their default way of reacting to things and is
1: adjusting to circumstances. Have you ever heard of the uh, philosopher who died in 2015, René Girard? No, I'm not. I I really admire. Him. He wrote a book called "Violence and the Sacred" and "Deceit, Desire in the Novel," and he has this idea that all of our desires are mimetic, which is like we desire things because we see other people desiring them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you know uh, what, what is the like, uh, Hannibal Lecter. You know we covet what we see every day, Clarice. Right. Uh, um, like the 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 secret to why things happen in the world, why we want things, and why we fight over them is that. We really have no being of our own, mm-hmm. but we see other people walking around the world. They seem to have being right. um, because like, we see them objectively that, you know, just they're a piece of matter walking around doing things. So, you say, oh, well, they have being and I don't. And so since the person walking around seems to have being and I know that I don't have being, then I say, well, what should I want? And we see what other people want. I say, well, I should want that too. That way I can have being. And so you want the things that other people want. And then, of course, that leads to rivalries because two sides want the same thing. But not for any intrinsic thing about the people or because of of the thing being wanted. It's because we want what other people want simply because it's the thing that other people want. And so he spins up this whole literary and sociological theory about it. And I see it like in, in small with my daughters, like there's like a million toys in our house. One of them has a toy. uh, That toy is one that the other one wants. Not because it's greater than anything else, because it's the one she has. Right. Um, And so our desires are mimetic, and our characters are mimetic too. So I'm talking about expectations. We take in the world around us, and we mold ourselves to it, and we don't have much interior life at all. We have what we see around us, which we try to mime, and what we try to replicate in what we try to participate in, um, and as our situation changes, we change on a dime, um, and I think characters do too.
0: Okay, so what do we learn? So, <laughs> as we try to put this all together into one coherent podcast here, let me try to go back to the idea of OODA loop. So we've we've talked about the first two. We've talked about ooh a lot, which are observe, orient, and you've talked about how it's good to sort of keep do what do like Philip Seymour Hoffman did, you know, disorient force your audience to observe, reorient, observe, reorient, before they can decide, okay, I know what this is, I'm acting, I'm putting this down, I'm walking away. But I do feel like you eventually have to have them have the audience commit to the story to a certain extent. You can't just keep disorienting them. And it's sort of like, well, of course, it's, you know, as you know, as I know, life is a lot like the 2005 movie Hitch starring Will Smith and Kevin James, where Will Smith is a... Uh, never seen it. Is, I Okay, I've never seen it either. But I what? saw the trailer. I saw the trailer. And uh, so, you know, this is a movie that I'm sure has aged wonderfully in this day and age. Because Will Smith is a pickup artist who teaches a billionaire fat white dude uh, played by Kevin James to uh, how to hit on women. And uh, nothing wrong with that. I can't imagine anything would be wrong with that. We I'm sure if we watched that movie tonight, we would just be relaxed and comfortable and happy. Uh And so but there's a bit from the trailer where it talks about where Will Smith is trying to teach Kevin James how to hit on or how to kiss. And he's saying that, you know, when you kiss, you don't just, you know, expect the two of you to be drawn together. You lean in ninety percent. And that, but you can't go in all the way. You don't go in all the way. You go in and you don't go in halfway. You don't go all the way. You go in 90% and then you wait for her to close the
1: additional 10%. This is like Matt, Matt has like a dark MRA side. He's like, he's, he's like, he's like the, the well, mystery. like yes, the, <laughs> I am a mystery. You, you don't see it right now, but Matt is wearing like a, like a, a, a felt top hat uh, um, and some other flair and he is. I'm um, peacocking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, these are some hot 2007 jokes that we're making right now.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so, but I feel like, you know, you have to be like Will Smith with your audience that, you know, I, I totally agree that you have to, you, you can't just expect your, you can't just weigh out your wares before an audience and go like, know, oh, yeah, well, come to me now audience. You have to be, you know, you have to keep disorienting them. You have to keep keeping them interested and being like Philip Seymour Hoffman, you have, to, you have to get inside their head, but then at a certain point, you have to shut up and say, you know, okay, so commit to the story. You decide and act. You Do you to, think at po- a certain
1: point, you have to let the audience decide and act, decide to commit to the story and act. Do you think it's at the point in which the hero decides to act? Like when they enter, if this is a Dan Harmon story circle, not when they're... The, the hero is comfortable at home, not when they realize something is wrong, but at point three, when they're entering the bottom half of the circle, when they're like, they we enter a new situation, we cross a threshold. Do you think that's a point which like the audience has to decide? Like, that's a like a yeah. quarter of the way through, essentially? Yeah, I think that... When, you when know, Luke is, like, blasting off of Tatooine, we're like, okay, that's an audience's I trust this movie.
0: I would say yeah, this movie has I would shown say, me everything I'd say there's show me, a moment like that. I would say there's a moment like that around the quarter point. I'd say there's probably a moment like that around the 3 quarters point where you're like, you know, you're saying like, okay, you know, let's, you know, we, you can't just constantly disorient your viewer. You can't just constantly disorient your audience. At a certain point you have to go like, you know, now we're gonna blow let's, up a Death Star. This is a straightforward scene blood. of blowing up
1: a Death Star. <laughs> let's let's all get on board here. Yeah. Um, well, but, yeah. Okay. But maybe it's uh, it's a deep truth. Then this deep is truth. how Oodaloops uh, work with um with like the Dana Harmon story circle at point three. And point seven. I hope you're all counting these points
0: at home. I hope. I hope. You There's kept a hero who's in a zone of comfort. <laughs> no, one, no, 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 two, okay, no, 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 no stop, 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 <laughs> stop. We we did a whole episode on that. I hope you kept all your notes. I hope you kept all your charts. We told you there would be a test. Here it is. No, we're not going to get into plot points, but we are going to we are going to I think keep this episode as what it is. I think that we are we've had a, I think we've got a good episode here. I think we're going strong. I think we're going to record another episode tonight. So you were going to not wait a year before the next episode. Any final thoughts on expectations, tactics, OODA loops, anything like that? I think we've hit upon a deep truth. Yes, well that's that's why we're here. That's why you're here, dear podcast listener. Because you trust us to hit on deep truths and uh you know we're leaning in ninety percent towards you and now you just have to, you know, lean the other ten. Right. And then it's been so long since we've been doing these podcasts. At this point, what we do is one of us gives away a story idea and uh see is sees if the other one wants to catch it or if we're gonna throw it out into the wild. It's and,
1: called, Oh, I had an idea. Oh, now you have it.
0: Oh, you got it! Oh, no. No, I don't think that's what we called it, but I don't remember. We were just talking, we don't remember what this was called, but there's a segment on this podcast that we have not done it in a long time, because I think the last one we actually released didn't have it, so I think that you have uh-huh. not heard this segment in a long time, but the one we did not release did have it, so we're just going to, you may, we're recording in a different audio program, so it may be slightly different audio quality, but we're going to snip these two together. It's going to be seamless. You won't You
1: won't notice it, except the fact is- I just told you that you're going to notice a huge gap. This is the idea that i had after our star wars episode that matt will never release because he's ashamed i'm ashamed i'm ashamed of what a what a crappy job i did on that episode so let's
0: go ahead and uh, and hear james pitch us the story so i believe you owe us a free story idea
1: yes all it's, right it's a it's a limited netflix series called screw tape have you ever read the screw tape letters by um... i never have i've never read the screw tape okay so the screw tape letters is, is a book by c.s lewis now, I know it's, 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 I, there's a lot of different opinions that people have when they hear the word C.S. Lewis. Some people just say, oh, Narnia, I love those books as a kid. And, and, and that would be me. And some people say, oh, yeah, I like the Narnia books as a kid, but then I read them again and as an adult, and they seem to have all this kind of weird Christian stuff that they're kind of sneaking in, and, and that would be me too. And then people say, ah, but it doesn't matter about the Christian stuff, these are great stories. And that is also me. And then it's people, oh, did you read his, like, theology stuff, like his books like Mere Christianity or The Problem of Pain or The Abolition of Man. Some of the stuff is really retrograde and awful. And that would be me. Some some people would say, oh, but actually, those books are really good and they have a lot of wisdom in them. And that would also be me. Screwtape Letters is one of his Christian apologetics books. And it is in the style of um, a bunch of letters written by a devil named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. Wormwood is a um, apprentice devil who's been given some guy in England to tempt into being a bad person. and Screwtape tape is giving him advice on how to tempt this person to be bad. But it's the, what, what's great about CS Lewis, the, the thing that makes him a wonderful writer is it's this great grasp of human psychology and the way that we try to, you know, um, cut corners, get out of things, uh, fool ourselves, um, try to be something that we're not. Don't give credit to people like just like all the kind of like little tiny social sins, like almost Seinfeldian sins. Not he's not one for big grand operatic kind of um, gestures. Like he he tries to do it in Narnia but tellingly, he has to do it on a child-sized um, kind of like palette or not palette but um canvas. Um, but a *Screw Tape* letters gets to what he's really good at, which is like when Edmund is wa- running away in *Narnia* and saying, "I'm gonna get my brothers and sisters back. I'll teach them that not to respect me. I'm gonna go sell them all out to the White Witch." Like the, in *Narnia*, there's some kind of like disconnect between like the sin and what's psychologically happening. But in *Screw Tape*, it's all utterly works because it's all of the same level. It's about all of the tiny things in which we, you can be, become a terrible person. So, So how on earth does this become a Netflix TV show? Because the premise of it is that there are these devils whose job it is to tempt people into being horrible. Um, And so, and there's this guy, screw tape, and in, in, in hell, like if you don't tempt enough people into damnation, you know, you get devoured by other devils or these awful things happen to you. There's a whole like bureaucracy of hell that is only like hinted at, but like every time it's mentioned, it's kind of like this, like, Nightmare bureaucracy, the kind of Brazil, like 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 the Terry Gilliam style right. Brazil bureaucracy, but like through C.S. Lewis's sensibility in the nineteen forties or fifties, whenever he read wrote it. Um, and so the idea of somebody who is like this tempter devil, kind of helping his nephew, his hapless devil nephew, into trying to. Seduce these people into being bad. These people who are not naturally bad, but they need a devil to push them along into being bad. Right. It just seems thematically rich and interesting. And so if it, it was during the of... time that that it's Screw Tape Letters is a set, which is like they're trying to tempt this guy who's like he, if I remember the book correctly, he um, is a man on the home front during World War II in England. For some reason, he couldn't go fight. In the army, and so he feels a little bit ashamed of that. And but he's not really pulling his weight, you know. Kind of, um, you know, in the home defense things and drills and stuff like that. It's like very small scale problems. Um, I don't know if it would be set then or if it's set in modern times. Um, But the thing is, you just the idea anybody could do. You can call it just called Joe Tempter. But I think you kind you kind of have to have the screw tape thing because a lot of people know who screw tape is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I recognize the, the word. Uh, but so why is
1: this a TV show and not a movie? Um, because movies are more... Um, movies are either temple things...
0: Or but I mean, just the, in terms of the length of the story, why is this a 10-hour story instead of a two-hour story?
1: Okay, because um, trouble walks in the door every day. You, you've got a new temptation, okay. that, put it in your terms, you've got a new temptation every time for this guy. You've got like these two devils who are trying to, working on this guy. And this could go in one direction or another. You can push him one way or another way in each episode. So you've got two kind of worlds here. You've got the world of hell, which you've got these two devils hanging around in an office and one of them on the other one's... Case all the time, and you've got the real world in which you know we've got this man and all of his relationships and things that are going on in his life, and so you could have these two, um, and like it's like the Cylons and you know the pe- people on the ship in Battlestar Galactica. I guess we never those episodes when we hung out with the Cylons were never very good no, <laughs> but they um but, but they could be good uh, um right. if, if, if the Cylons were just robots but like I, if the, the 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 devils are miserable they're miserable bureaucrats in in like like shitty working conditions like like dealing with all kinds of terrible inconveniences they're very human devils they they have they're, they're not like un, they're not like lucifer in uh, paradise lost they're not like unbounded by time and space and floating through the air they they they're like they have shitty jobs right uh, um and, and it's the it, it, screwtape letters is a very funny book it's a funny book because it's rooted in human frailty and insights in human psychology
0: right I mean, we're in this very interesting period now where we're starting to think in terms of Game of Thrones was the first one to do it in terms of let's just have a season of TV based on one book. And it was very daring. And it's become this thing now. We're like, you know, we've got it with Handmaid's Tale. We've got it with all these other mm-hmm. things. And it's just an entirely new way of thinking about storytelling. It's, Better way. It's It's very different from what TV has always been. It's very different from what movie adaptations have always been.
1: And it can get a little bloated. But it's more adventuresome. Like you have yeah. things that would never be on a movie screen that are able to have good production values, and the people who want to see that kind of thing can see it. Right. So has anybody ever adapted screw tape letters into a
0: movie? Have I don't know. Probably anything? never like this. I mean,
1: yeah. um, and the, the thing is, it's you wouldn't have to adapt it beat by beat from the book. Right. It's just the premise is the premise. interesting. So probably th- things that are in the book should probably just be. Because... The thing is, like, C.S. Lewis has a very acute psychology, but he's also sexist and of his time and kind of hard to take in many ways. And so like we can kind of like, I would just I'm not even remembering the original story, flush that out and do something that's, like, thematically similar to it, but, um, but make it something that people would actually identify with now. But a period piece? I, I don't know. Maybe a period piece, maybe not. I mean, it, it's the. Uh, the period piece might be like, a, it's a hat on a hat. Like, wait, are you doing something about living in the 1940s or are you doing something about the devil? You, you know? Right. Um, but so then again, the, you could say the same things about the Narnia books. Well, or, or like, you know, why don't you just have them go into Narnia from, you know, the year 2004? Uh, um, the, the, there, there's a reason. The story was born there and so it kind of lives there. Right.
0: No, I, I like the idea of it being a period piece. So, you know, so. Are you serious about giving this away to our to our listeners? Or are you just, are you not serious about that?
1: I'll give it away. I mean, the thing away. is, yeah, go ahead. Good luck getting the rights <laughs> to the name
0: Tape. So we're sort of getting away from we, how we normally do these things, which is that you pitch your idea and I try to get you to keep the idea and then you decide whether or not you want to give it away. Wait, wait, I what? don't think... How, we, how is that not different? Well, usually I then try to... Can you know this is an idea? I think you're. I think you're genuinely excited about this idea. I don't think this is an idea that that is an old idea of yours that you've given up on. I think this is a new idea of yours that you're still excited about. I don't think you need me to come in and do what I would normally do at this point, which is try to convince you not to give it away. I don't think you want to. I think so-
1: there's something weird about this premise of like, let's end up every show. With like talking about something we have no enthusiasm for. <laughs> <laughs> that was the original concept. The original concept was I will try to convince you.
0: I will try to convince you to hang on to this idea that you're ready to give away. But but you're ready to give it away. But you're we're gonna give this away to uh, someone is, out there. Should get the rights to the novel, the screw tape letters. Okay. Well, that's great. So that's a wonderful little gift we can give out to the world. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, again, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this has been the Secrets of Story podcast. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to SecretsOfStory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James' novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at JamesKennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash Secrets of Story. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.